Well, I invite you, if you'd like to turn to John chapter 8, we're continuing our walk uh, through the Gospel of John. I don't know about you, but I've never really noticed how confrontational uh, Jesus Christ and the Jews' relationship is uh, until we've walked ourselves through this gospel. They are constantly at his throat. He is uh, constantly calling them to uh, believe in him and confronting them with the truth of who he is. And it's really, you could argue, uh, coming to a bit of a head here. Uh, the passage we're looking at this morning and the following one, uh, where they actually pick up stones to uh, stone him, uh, Jesus is just laying it out. He's, he's telling them the truth uh, with uh, starkness, you might say, with great clarity and pulling no punches. So as we read this and take a look at it, I invite you to, as it were, fasten your seatbelt, strap in. Uh, this is quite a ride. And uh, uh, Lord willing, we will each be able to grow from it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, before each other, we can put on a show which we may or may not be aware of. We can, before men, fool each other. We can do it on purpose. We can do it accidentally. But before you, we all stand bare, as it were stark naked, exposed. You know our hearts. You know our spiritual life. You know whether we trust in your Son or not, and you know whether or not our hearts are set on your glory or on our self-glory and selfishness. And so we pray that you would reveal to each of us the truth about who we are before you as Jesus is doing that before the Jews standing in front of him. And we pray that you'll do this so that we might be able to deal with the truth. So after you Show us what we are. Give us hearts to deal with it. And if we are lost, we ask that because today is the day of salvation, that you draw us to yourself and that we trust in Christ. And if we're your genuine people who are trusting in Christ, we ask that you'd encourage our hearts, that you'd strengthen our faith, and that this would be a passage which uh, encourages us to go out and live for your glory. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. John chapter 8, we're going to begin reading at verse 37. Jesus says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. He's saying this to the Jews, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. 
Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives uh, this morning. Uh, as I've already mentioned, brothers and sisters in Christ, Pope Church, and everyone uh, listening today, this is a passage where Jesus kind of lays it out. He's been going back and forth with the Jews for quite a few chapters now. Uh, he's been extending them every invitation to believe in him. He's presented the gospel to them over and over again. And yet these Jews, and when John talks about the Jews in this setting, you can think particularly of scribes and Pharisees. So think of Jewish leaders, a lot of them, religious leaders, uh, certainly Jews who are uh, of Abrahamic descent. They could trace their biology all the way back to Abraham. So they're thoroughbred Jews. Uh, in this context, he's just laying it out flat out. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ is known as the friend of sinners. When people come to him broken, people come to him uh, at the end of their rope, in sickness and in unbelief, he is eminently gracious. He has compassion on the multitudes who are like sheep without a shepherd. He's on the way to go heal a daughter and a woman with issue of blood gets healed on the way. He just, everywhere he goes, he's healing. In fact, his disciples, Mark 3 and him, are, were told they're skipping meals in order to have compassion uh, on people who don't know him through his teaching and also through his ministry of healing. But on the flip side, Jesus, out of love as well, for an entirely different crowd, not the hurting and broken who don't know him, but the people who are self-righteous and think they know God, but are leaning on their obedience and should know better. They believe in the Old Testament. They have the scriptures, and they think that in them they have life through their obedience. To these people, Jesus has to love in a, in a very different way. He's not saying, hey, everything's fine. Uh, go, sin no more, etc." He's calling them out, saying, you're missing me in this. You think you're safe without a savior. You think you can save yourself by just being born in the right family and by trying to obey the commands that come easier for you and sort of hypocritically ignoring all the ones that you don't obey. And to that crowd, because of the hardness of their heart, he, goes, he loves them in an entirely different way. And we see the stark reality of that uh, in the passage before us. The worst form of hate is indifference. The way that Jesus could have hated these people would have been to just ignore them. The self-righteous crowd, let them go to hell. I'm not gonna say a word, I'm just wasting my time. That would, have been, that would have been hate. But how do you love people like this? You just tell them the truth. And the truth in this passage is hard. It's, it's pretty blunt, but it's love, beloved. And as we reach out into this world around us, somebody just mentioned this briefly, uh, and we'll deal with this more. Sometimes you, you, you give people the gospel, we love people enough, but sometimes there's relationships and there's people who are so hardened in their own self-righteousness that telling the truth, if the world around us looks at it, they'd say you hate them. But actually, hopefully we're motivated by love and the best thing to do to love them is actually just to tell them the truth, even though they may not like to hear it at all. So I want to begin, we're going to look primarily because that's what the passage is about, is we're going to look at the character of the, of the devil and his children, 90% of what we're looking at this morning, and then we're going to close with the character of God's children, because it's implied in here. There's a few things, three things in particular, but the majority of this is about the character of the devil and his children, and really how we can tell the difference. So the first characteristic of the devil and his children is that they want the kingdom of Christ destroyed they want the Messiah killed, verses 39 to 40. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. 
Well, this is just characteristic of the devil. They were just doing what Satan did. Satan tried to rid the world of Jesus Christ at his birth. Let's go kill Bethlehem's baby boys and try and rid the world of the Messiah. He showed up again at the temptations. Let's rid the world of this Christ. Let's tempt him. He'll fall. Therefore, he can't be the Redeemer. He can't be the Savior. He can't be God's Son. And then his biggest event, you could argue, is when he entered into Judas Iscariot to try and get Christ to die, to be betrayed in the hands of lawless men and be crucified and be done with them. And obviously, the Lord and his uh, uh, all-knowingness had devised that plan uh, so that Jesus would come out of the grave at the resurrection and actually Satan would kind of shoot himself in the foot. But Satan has been trying to destroy the work of our Lord Jesus Christ from the beginning. Uh, he's been trying to destroy the work of God from the very beginning. But I don't want us to think that John chapter 8 and prior to that when the devil's working and in the Gospels is the only place where the devil and all of his children are trying to destroy the work of Christ. It's happening all around the world today where professing Christians are gathering together to worship God and teachers of the Bible are giving great moral lessons that have nothing to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's happening everywhere around the world, beloved. Remember, Jesus is talking to people in the church, as it were. He's talking to Jews. He's talking to the people of Israel, the thoroughbreds. And he's saying, look, you're trying to destroy me. I'm the one you should believe in. You want to update that to today or you want to go back to that day? He'd be, as it were, addressing all of us in the church. Yeah, we're, we're thoroughbred people of God. We've got a great pedigree. We believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been connected to Christianity for so long. And he's saying, as it were, don't destroy me. If you destroy me, you're trying to kill me, take me out of your life by having nothing to do with me, then your father is the devil. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, probably familiar to many of you, this quote, said, uh, described what things would look like in a city, the city of Philadelphia, where he pastored, if Satan had control over the city. And he said uh, this, if Satan had control over Philadelphia, the city where Barnhouse pastored, or Pella, Iowa, the city where we're living or surrounding communities, all of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ was not preached. Because if Christ isn't proclaimed, and he's not put forth as the savior of the world, then who gets glory in the churches? We do. And that's exactly what the Jews were doing. Look at us. We're children of Abraham. We're obedient. We're not like those Gentile dogs. And Jesus is saying, I've got some hard truth to tell you. Your father's the devil. You have nothing to do with me. Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ is not just some catchphrase that we as Christians need to throw around. He's not just something that we tack on to the side of our lives like a sidecar on a motorcycle saying, well, if, if Jesus, as long as he's in the realm of me and in the vicinity of my life, then I'm safe. Now he needs to be our savior, the preeminent figure in our life, our first love. And if he's not, if Jesus Christ isn't our Lord and savior, then we're kidding ourselves if we think we're Christians. Our father is the devil then and we believe the lie. The second characteristic of the devil and his children is that they pride themselves in physical descent for salvation. So I want to kind of walk through uh, like four passages, four verses in this passage 
on chapter 8, verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham, they said. Verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. So Jesus affirms that. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. And verse 41, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Likely a reference to, hey, we're not from Ishmael. We're not from Hagar, where Abraham slept with Hagar, uh, his wife that Sarah gave to him. We're not, we're not of that line. We're actually of the straight line down from Isaac. We're all the way back to Abraham legitimately. And so they're priding themselves on their physical descent from Abraham. And I want to mention this. Connection to Abraham is important. I'll get to that in just a minute. Galatians 3, 7 Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And Romans 9, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are of the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. In other words, Connection to Abraham is important, but it's not a blood biological connection. It's the connection of faith. What's important isn't that we share Abraham's blood, but that we share the same faith in the same Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Abraham is important. But many Jews that Jesus is speaking to here and all throughout the Gospels relied on their biological connection to Abraham as a means of salvation, which is why John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 to 9 said this, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath of come, the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Uh, as I was reading and studying, I came across this from quite a few people, and one commentator put it this way regarding the Jewish mindset of how important being biologically related to Abraham was for their salvation. One commentator put it this way. In the early period of the Tanaim, uh, the Jewish rabbis around the time of Christ, the issue may have been the expectation that Abraham's Israelite descendants would all be saved, except for those who broke covenant. Later Jewish traditions elaborated that point more explicitly. Abraham filled the special role of intercessor, a portrait the rabbis applied especially to his posthumously efficacious intercession for Israel. They also, catch this, developed the tradition that all Israel would be saved into the idea that Abraham rescued all but the most wicked Israelites from Gehenna. So for the Jews standing in front of Jesus, here would have been their mindset. In order to be saved, I need a biological connect connection to Abraham, and I need to graduate in the top of my moral class. As long as I'm not breaking covenant, as long as I'm not among the most wicked of Abraham's biological descendants, as long as I'm towing the line, as it were, morally, and not standing out like Barabbas, as it were, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm saved. And Jesus knows this. And so he goes after them, saying it's not enough to just be a biological child of Abraham and to be a moral human being. And if you question them about that, they'll get very defensive. Verses 39 to 41, Abraham's our father. We were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. They're starting to push back a little bit. They're offended by this. Don't tell us that we need more than Abraham as our father in order to be saved. A.W. Pink said this regarding their defensiveness and their unwillingness to accept Jesus as their Savior. 
They were contrasting themselves from the heathen. The heathen are in bondage, we allow, but you are now talking to those who belong to the covenant people. We belong to the Jewish church. This was the force of their remarks. It's not difficult to perceive how well this describes what is a matter of common observation today. Let the servant of God preach in the churches of this land on the ruined and lost condition of the natural man. Let them faithfully apply the message to the people present and the result will be the same as in John 8. The great mass of religious professing Christians who have a form of godliness but know nothing and manifest nothing of its power will hotly resent being classed with those on the outside. They will tell you, we belong to the true church. We are Christians, not infidels. Look, beloved, we live in a religiously rich town, Pella, Iowa. Uh, we have a Dutch Reformed background. We celebrate it every year at tulip time. We're proud of our heritage, tremendously good things. But what Jesus, I think if he was here confronting a lot of us in the church, he may say this, how many of you are relying on your Dutchness are relying on your religious heritage where your grandparents brought your parents to church, catechized them, taught the Bible? How many of you are relying on your Christian education, whatever that may have looked like, where you memorized the Bible at home or in schools? How many of you are relying on that to be saved? Because it won't save you. Jesus alone saves. Hard thing to wrap our minds around. And he'd go to the churches to say that, beloved. He's not talking to the world here. He's not talking to, to people who are lost and have never heard the gospel. He'd go to the churches to say this. He's looking at the Jews to say this. So here at Hope, how many of us have been relying on that? I can't tell you how many conversations I've had. I'm sure many of us have had the same thing. Are you a Christian? Oh yeah, my parents were Christians. I was raised in the Christian school. I've gone to church my whole life. Yep, I'm a Christian. I've done the Christian thing. And sometimes... If I'm bold enough, I'll ask them the same question again. Are you a Christian? Because Jesus alone saves. Because trusting in him is salvation, beloved. And indeed, as Christians, we're going to worship God. <laughs> and as a response to being saved, we're going to read the Bible. And we're going to be praying to God. And we're going to try to strive to serve the Lord. But a vague connection with Christ through a Christian school or through Christian parents can't save anybody, beloved. And those are great gifts, by the way. Praise God if you're raised to know Christ. Praise God if, if you've heard of Christ in your education. Praise God if God's given you Christian parents. It's amazing, it's a great gift because so many people come to faith because they've heard Christ from their parents. But you gotta believe in Jesus yourself in order to be saved. And these people had a lot of pride, these Jews and their morality, their clean homes, their clean lives, they're free from scandalous sins. They're not at the bottom of the barrel they're Abraham's descendants. They're kind of in the top of the class. They're the religious leaders. Therefore, we're safe. They don't like being associated with real sinners. They don't even view themselves as real sinners. In fact, if you ask them, are you sinful? Some of them would have said yes, but you ask them to get specific and you're not going to get very far because all of a sudden you get down to nuts and bolts then. Well, that's real commandment breaking. That's a real problem. It's the same today, beloved. I'm saying right here in our own town, maybe right here in our own midst, do we believe we're real sinners? Do we pride ourselves on our religious heritage, which is a blessing from God? But is that where we look to for salvation? Or are we just satisfied with church membership somewhere and being in the top half of Pella's moral class where we're not in the jail cell, we're not written up by the police on a weekly or monthly or yearly basis. And as far as people around us know, we're just a really good person who goes to work every day loves our family members, and is a great neighbor because it's not going to save us. 
And that's the hard reality that Jesus put before these Jews and he puts it before us today. The third uh, characteristic of the devil and his followers is that they give lip service to obedience. Verse 39, chapter 8. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. So Abraham, uh, just he, he obeyed God. He did the works uh, that God was calling him to do. Uh, namely, he believed God first, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he followed God. Abraham, out of the earth of Chaldees, get up and go. So Abraham just started walking. <laughs> he had no idea where he was going. He, he didn't receive any inheritance in this world. His inheritance he was looking for was in the next life. And no matter where God called Abraham to go, he just went. He obeyed God and followed him. And what this communicates to us is that all true believers just do what Abraham did. We, we trust in, in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, and then we seek and strive to obey God. So Abraham's faith, his relationship with God, issued forth into good works. Or as James puts it in James chapter 2, verse 22, Abraham's faith was completed by his works. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Faith apart from works is dead. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is if you're really a child of mine, you do what Abraham did. If you really believe in God, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, your life will show it. You will obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in order to be saved, but what will happen is if we genuinely believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, good works will be a result of that salvation. It'll be a result of the faith. In other words, faith always produces good works. Good works don't save us, but good works are just the result. They're the evidence of the fact that we have been saved. Now, I wrote down like four different confessions which point this out. I don't want to <laughs> burden us with a lot of it, but in the Augsburg Confession, they wrote, faith is bound to bring forth good fruits. Very simple. Abraham believed God, and he did, he did the works that God would have him to do. And Jesus says to these Jews, if you were Abraham's children, if you really believed in God, you'd be doing what Abraham did, and you're not. Therefore, your faith that you claim you have in God is actually dead. You don't have a faith in God. You're not of the same faith as Abraham. And A.W. Pink put it this way. Let me just mention what he said. Here was and still is the decisive test. The profession of our lips amounts to nothing at all if it be not confirmed by the character of our lives. Talk is cheap. It is our works, what we do, which evidences what we really are. A tree is known by its fruits. Love of Jesus is not saying, hey, you want to be a child of God? Then go grab a bunch of counterfeit apples, fake apples, plastic apples, and use a clothes uh, a line. What do they call those things? <laughs> My mind just went blank. Yeah. <laughs> a clothes pin. Thank you. Yes. And take that clothes pin and take all those plastic apples and pin them to the outside of an oak tree. And they say there, I got fruit. See, I have genuine faith because I've got all these plastic apples clothes pinned to the outside of my life. See, I've got a Bible study. I've got a prayer life. I've got a little bit of obedience. Uh-uh. He's saying, if you have a brand new heart, which is what the Holy Spirit does at the new birth at regeneration, and you've been changed from the inside, you've been saved by God's grace, where the Holy Spirit's come in and brought us from spiritual death to life, if that's taken place in your life and you genuinely believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
then fruit will appear in your life from the inside out. You won't be adding things from the outside like rocks to a rock pile. You'll be like a tree. Fruit will be born and works will be done. Not to prove you're a good person, but just because faith produces good works. It produces obedience to God. The fourth characteristic of the devil and his children is that they are liars. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Eve was the first one the devil lied to. Right in Genesis uh, 3, the lies started. Uh, the devil, uh, another big instance is when he convinced Judas Iscariot that betraying Christ for 30 pieces of silver was a good idea. But eventually Judas discovered it wasn't and hung himself after he gave the money back. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So his lies, when they come, so often look like tremendously good ideas. But they're just lies. They're just in a really good cloak. We're told it's part of his character or it's actually part of his own being, his own self. Satan is just the father of lies. Satan, if you ask Satan what comes most natural to you, lying is what comes most natural to Satan. He lies. Uh, that's just part of his very character. I want to walk us through particularly three lies because I think we're being brought back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 because he talks about Satan as a liar and murderer. And that's where murder started is in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve were subject to death. And there's particularly three lies that Satan is great at propagating in this world down to this day. Uh, and it started with Eve. The first lie is this, God's word is not sufficient for life. Genesis 3.1, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan is planting a doubt in Eve's mind as to whether or not the word of God can be trusted. Did God really say that? Is that accurate? Is that all there is? Are you sure, are you sure he didn't mean more to that than just the bare word of you shall not eat of that tree? And all around the world today, beloved, ever since that day, there are people inside the church and outside the church who believe the lie that though some of them may even believe God created the universe and all of its vastness and every living creature and all of our intricacies and details, but this God isn't capable of speaking clearly enough and preserving his word long enough for us to actually turn to it and read it and discover what he really said. So this God is capable of much, but he's not a very good communicator. And so what we need today is for God to speak to us audibly, like show up from the clouds, part the heavens and come speak to us. And that's what the Jews indeed were asking for. People this day are asking for it. Just part the heavens, God, speak directly to me, speak in English, not in a foreign language, just come and speak in English really clear, really loud. And what Jesus would say to people who have that mindset today and to the Jews that he was looking to in that day is, I already did it. God parted the heavens. He did more than just speak. He came down. He actually looked people eye to eye, toe to toe. Jesus is God incarnate. And he spoke and taught. And he spoke over and over again to these Jews. God looking these Jews in the eye. Calling them to believe. And you know what? They still wouldn't believe him. They still didn't believe that God was speaking to them. Beloved, 
what's characteristic of the devil and his children is they don't want to have any part of God's word or they want to edit it and get rid of most of it. They don't believe that God really just speaks through his word or that God's even qualified or even very good at communicating, but he's made clear what it is we're called to do. Just believe in his son and then follow him. Deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow him until the day that we die. It's pretty clear. I remember in uh, Springfield, Missouri, there was a lady, it's kind of a hard story. She uh, was part of a church that taught that, you know, the word of God, sure, take it or leave it. But what you really need to assure that you're a Christian is not to follow what God's written here, to believe in Jesus and here's the commandments and obey them and here's all what God has done for us. But what you really need is God to speak to you audibly. And one day she thought she heard or she was convinced she heard God audibly say, you got to go buy this house. So she bought it. <laughs> it was in a neighborhood uh, of friends of Rochelle and I, and they had started talking to them. And she said, yeah, God told me to buy this house. 12 months later, she foreclosed on the house because there was no way she could have afforded it. I don't know how a bank even gave her the money for it. And the question was, why did God tell you to buy this house if you can't afford it? And it was just sort of crickets. But Proverbs tells us about being wise with debt, right? He's already spoken regarding that. Paul tells us in Philippians 4 about learning to be content with our station in life, whether plenty or in want. But she's saying that God actually went against his word to tell her, you got to have this house. You deserve this better house. Go take it. Love that's being propagated everywhere. Outside the church, that God has to speak to us in order to validate his existence but it's also being propagated in the church. It's horrible, horrible for people that people don't trust that God can write a word, preserve it, and we can actually read it down to this day. Like God's not smart enough or capable enough to do that. Well, he is, he really is. Uh, the second lie that Satan tempted Eve with was, was there are no consequences for sin, Genesis three, verse four. You will not surely die. Remember the Lord told Adam and Eve, if you eat of this fruit, dying you will die, or you will surely die. And Satan, you won't surely die. <laughs> For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will not surely die. Eve, don't worry about the consequences of this. You can sin against God, and there will be no consequences. And again, down to this day, this belief is promulgated. You can commit the greatest sin of unbelief, refusing to believe in Jesus Christ. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. Other unbelievers will be fine. Everything will sort of pan out in the end. There's no real hell. That's a huge lie Satan propagates all over the world. You can refuse to believe in Jesus and you can live your life on this earth doing whatever you want and there won't be anything to deal with after you die. It's one of the greatest lies being propagated now. Maybe you could argue it is the greatest lie because what the Bible teaches over and over again is yeah, you can refuse to believe in Jesus. But then afterwards, because Jesus didn't pay for your sins because you didn't believe in him, you have to pay for your own sins. And that punishment doesn't stop. It doesn't last for a thousand years. It doesn't last for a million years. It doesn't even last for as short as 10 billion years. It doesn't stop. So what a lie, beloved, being taught all over the world by Satan and everybody who's indwelt with him that you can refuse to believe in Jesus and nothing will really happen. The third lie, God desires humans be miserable. God is oppressive, Genesis 3, 4. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's trying to convince Eve that God is actually against her. Eve, come on. God knows that if you eat this fruit, things are going to get a little better. You're going to be just like him. And he doesn't want you to enjoy the fullness of what he created you to be. He doesn't want you to become like him. He wants to keep you down in information and knowledge. He doesn't want you to know good and evil. So Eve, just take of it and things will get way better. In other words, God is against you to oppress you. He's not here for your well-being. This was the first lie that convinced Eve that God was against her, repressing her. And again, down to this day, people still believe this. Satan still propagates that lie. And here's how the lie goes. People down to this day, this very day, believe that 70 years of self-centered fun, followed by an eternity of punishment for one's sins that will never end, is better than 70 years of service to Christ, followed by an eternity of bliss and happiness that will never end. That's what people believe. God is against you. He tells you to believe and follow Jesus and deny yourself and put to death the deeds of the body and obey his commandments. Oh, that's so oppressive. <laughs> Do whatever you want sexually. Go out and party, drink, lose your mind. Come on, just go. Whatever you want to do in this world, go do it. That's the best thing for human beings. Do it for all 70 years. What comes next? Don't worry about it. As opposed to this, how much is God for us? That he would say, look, you want life? Believe in my son. You want life? You want joy? Do what, I've, do what I created you to do. I created you to have a relationship with me, to find your joy in me, to know me, to obey my commandments. Why are the commandments not burdensome to Christians? Why does John say that? The commandments are not burdensome. Why? Because that's what we were created to do. We we're actually created to love God above all. We we're actually created to love other people. That's why the commandments aren't burdensome. So beloved, a mark of the character of the devil and his children is to just believe this lie and propagate this lie. That you know what, God's against us, he's not for us. And you know what, the greatest proof that God is, is for us is that after Adam and Eve blew it, he said, okay, I've already seen this coming. I've got a plan for this. I am so for human happiness and human flourishing and human blissfulness and human joy that I'm sending my son to come down and fix your problem. You guys started a war with me that you can't finish. You picked a fight that you're gonna lose. You came into the ring with a giant with God and you're gonna lose when you face my wrath. So I'm gonna send my son to jump in the ring for you. I'm gonna send my son to come and finish the fight that you picked. And on that cross at Calvary, when the lights turn out and you hear Jesus cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You will know that the reason he's forsaken is because he's standing in your place, is because you're the wimps who couldn't do that is because you're the people who wouldn't obey me and you couldn't even bear up underneath my wrath. You'll know at that moment that he's the one you need to trust in. You'll know that I love you and that I want you in heaven when I don't even withhold my only begotten son, the second person of the Trinity, the most valuable gift that's ever been given to any human being ever. Take all the Christmas gifts around the world throughout all time, assemble them all together, give it to somebody. That gift can't even be compared to the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ and God declaring to the world, I want human beings happy. I want you in heaven where there's no more pain or sorrow or death and I'll wipe away every tear. Revelation 21, I so want your happiness that I'll send my son 
Just believe in him. Yeah, live 70 years for me. Die to self, live for me. And let me tell you how it's going to end. It'll end in an eternity that isn't worthy. Your suffering here and now, Paul say, isn't worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us one day. So what's 70 years of pain? Imagine this exchange. 70 years of pain for a thousand years of bliss. Who wouldn't take that? Every one of us would raise our hand saying, I take it, right? 70 years of pain, start with pain, a thousand years of bliss, I'm in. How about this? 70 years of pain and 80 years of bliss. Every one of us would sign up. We're like, that's a great investment. That's, that's more than 50% of bliss. Who wouldn't pick this one? 70 or 80 years of pain and toil, dying to self and following Christ no matter the cost. For an eternity, a forever that never ends of bliss in God's presence where he dwells with us like the Garden of Eden again. Who wouldn't take that? Well, it just goes to show our hard and proud, our hearts are by nature when Jesus stands in front of these people and offers this to them and they won't take it for eternal life. And finally, well, two more characteristics. This is going on long. <laughs> two more characteristics. Uh, the devil and his uh, children are murderers and haters. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Why all the lies? Why does Satan use lies? Because he's trying to murder. Why did Satan lie to Eve in order to murder her? So that she would die. He wants Eve destroyed. That's why. So the devil uses lies in order to destroy people. Now, think of this. If you pause to consider for a moment life or the universe from the devil's perspective, uh, the devil's in the worst spot of any creature because he can't repent. Every human being can repent and come to the Lord. The devil can't. There's no way out of this. There, he cannot be saved. His fate is sealed. He will be in hell under God's wrath forever. So imagine the vitriol, the anger, the hate that he has for every human being around the world. Misery loves company. He wants hell filled. And he will stop at nothing. He will exhaust all of his resources to indeed fill hell. So he goes into this world lying in order to murder and destroy people eternally. That's exactly what he wants to do. All around the world today, there are people worshiping the devil. Maybe it's happening in Pella. I know in Springfield, there was quite a satanic community, people worshiping the devil. They believe him worthy of worship. They are deceived thinking that he's not that bad and that he's actually worthy of their worship and that his causes are fairly noble. What they don't understand, the lie that they believe is that if they were lying on the side of the road, both eyes gouged out, both legs broken, having been assaulted and within an inch of their death, and the devil walked by, he would step on your face, he'd wring your neck, and he'd say, go to hell. There is no mercy with this devil. There is no compassion. There is no love. There is lying and pure murder, which is hate. Hate is the fountain of murder. That, that's who this being is, and he's in this world. Some people parade around, you know, the devil is sort of kind of a, someone who's eternally grouchy, right? Like a grumpy old man, <laughs> he's maybe in a bad mood uh, day to day. We dress up as him. He's this little dude who sits on one shoulder and got the Lord on the other, and he just, he's, he's so small that you can crush him if you want, but he just whispers bad things into your ear, and he's actually not all that harmful. No, he actually wants every single human being to be in hell suffering under God's wrath forever. That's what he wants. He wants you there. 
He wants me there. He wants every, and he's not going to be satisfied until he gets it. That's what he wants. And thankfully, he will never be satisfied. And then finally, the last characteristic of the devil and his children is that they cannot hear the word. Verses 43 and 45, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear or are not able to hear my word. And then verse 45, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The reason why they can't hear Christ is because their father is the devil. You have to be born again before you'll understand the word, believe in Christ, and have any idea of what to do with it. Well, then finally, let's conclude with this briefly, the character of God's children. Verse 39, they believe and obey God. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. All true Christians bear fruit. All true Christians who are born again do good works. Not in self-righteousness, even though our good works are still sinful, but our faith issues forth into doing good, into obeying God's commands. The second characteristic of God's children is that we love Jesus Christ, verse 42. If, you, if God were your father, you would love me. True believers cherish Christ. They love Christ. We love Christ more than we love our spouses. We love Christ more than we love our children, more than we love our parents. True believers love Christ more than they love their own lives. And they would willingly give their lives before they would deny Christ. Burn me at the stake, persecute me, kick me out of my family, force me to lose my job, make me suffer for Christ, that's fine. I love him more than I love my own life and my own comfort. All who are born of God love Jesus. And then finally, true believers receive and understand the word. Verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So. John 10, 3, the sheep hear my voice. The sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. Everyone who is a true Christian loves the word of God. We hear it, we read it, we receive it. The good parts that are really great, like heaven and growing in holiness and joy, and the parts that are hard, like having to die to self, repent of sin, undergo pain and chastisement because God loves us as proof of our legitimacy. We love all the word. So Jesus is speaking to people in the church. Where are you? A child of the devil or a child of God? Where am I? It's one or the other, beloved. As hard as Jesus comes down on self-righteous people, it's the most loving thing he can do. Hate lets people perish unwarned. Love warns people so that they, if they perish, it's going to be, as Spurgeon said, with our knees, with our arms wrapped around them, their knees, begging them and pleading them, stepping over top of us, getting out from our grip in order to go to hell. That's love, grabbing their knees, warning people. And if they're gonna go to hell, let them go there with our arms wrapped tightly around their knees, saying, don't trust in Jesus. Where are you? Where am I? Let's pray.